Anything's possible, though, because, you know, Bitcoin is money, so, you know, money talk, man. Welcome to the Bitcoin Podcast, powered by Cointelegraph. What began as a small experiment is now a rapidly expanding ecosystem. As citizens of the internet, we expect to be able to send money over the internet as quickly and cheaply as sending an email. As citizens of the internet, we demand transparency. Here, we talk about Bitcoin, Ethereum, blockchain industries, fintech, and more. But we're not experts. We're just three guys in the Bitcoin community. And adoption is the only thing that matters. Bitcoin Podcast, episode number 110. I'm your first host, Marcello. And I'm host number two, Dimitric. And I'm host number three, Corey. We are brought to you by VPN Services. Mm. I just got my uh, my laptop at IBM and I can't log in until I connect the VPN. So that's a thing now. It's part <laughs> of my life. <laughs> Good thing you got it for free. Good thing. <laughs> well, it's pretty much uh, free when I mean, you pay for it. It's so cheap. I think that's that's a good way to put it. Um, this service right here is <laughs> it, it's only three dollars a month, and there's a seven day money back guarantee. So if you're not convinced by um, me and Corey's personal testimony, I mean, you have no excuse not to try it. And I'm I used about it. Me. Did you? What do you think? I mean, it's VPN. It's not like not like getting a brand new PlayStation. I mean, it's not like, oh shit. Like, I'm not really super excited, but I VPN my shit and it worked. It worked great. So, for the sake of this advertisement, though, would you say it is as excited <laughs> as a PlayStation? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I push that connect button, damn. Nothing happens. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> happened. And I was able to surf the internet. The shit is crazy. Yeah, because you got to start browsing securely and anonymously um, with a PIA. That's super awesome. Hell yeah. I anonymously got on my Facebook page and pretended to be myself. For, so for those of you who use that incognito button like crazy, guess what? You're only hiding things from your spouse, not the internet service provider. No, use a VPN and hide it from everyone. That hits home. Yeah, so use a VPN so nobody knows what porn you're looking at. I didn't say porn. I just said incognito button. That website is uh, privateinternetaccess.com for all your hydroporny needs. You know who needs stuff? (laughs) Anthony Weiner. He needs VPN services. He he needs to stop taking pictures of himself. Sending dip pics way too much, man. He he got caught so much his, his wife just was forced to divorce his ass. Like he got caught three times and he was, she was like, okay, three times is enough, man. Like, geez, you're making me look bad. Anyways, Anthony Weiner, we're not going to politics here. Yeah, we're Let's not doing on. that. Keep it moving. Chelo, what do you got for us? Do we have any more ads? Brought Cheerios? Does Cheerios sponsor us now? Nope. Surprise. Nope. They do not. Did he leave the room? Did no. He say, Fuck you guys. I no, need to said, do my ads. He said leave. it's a surprise. Oh, okay. Let's talk about Bitcoin. Uh, 
And as Ken Bosak puts it, Bitcoin and Bitcoin accessories. Bitcoin and Bitcoin accessories. Um, (laughs) Like that's my favorite part. Um, You know, this week, everybody was all through the roof that China legitimized Bitcoin in China. The the people in China went in and I was like, what? I don't feel like they legitimized anything. I feel like they just went in there and put their D piece on the table and said, hey, we're watching you guys now. So good luck trying to operate the way you want to because our D piece is on the table. Well, they came in and they said, all right, guys, are you compliant? Are you fucking around? What are you doing? What's going on here? Are you meeting all standards? So on and so forth as a business. You laundering money, doing everything we're supposed to be doing. And that's that's pretty much what happened and what came out of it, which is a really good point or what's going to move forward to help volatility is that like a lot of the exchanges are no longer allowing for 100 times margin trading, like 100 times leverage for margin trading. So you won't see crazy, 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 well, as much volatility in the market and the price. I think coming out of them not being able to margin so heavily you're not going to see these crazy swings coming back and forth with with a lot of the Chinese traders, which was really driving this price roller coaster. Well, it was a, at least a, a a part of the driving of the crazy roller coaster in price. So if we see a lot more, a lot less volatility in the price, you'll see a lot more people being more comfortable jumping in and using it as an investment tool or living off Bitcoin like I do. Yeah, it makes it easier. I'm trying to think, like, why? I wish the community wouldn't take every little thing and make it into something that it is or it isn't. Like, why? Why log? I hop on Reddit and it's like Bitcoin is now legitimized in China to the fucking moon. We're folding space now, and I was like, what? That doesn't seem like that's what happened. But oh. I know one thing: if you were coming in to look at my business, Corey, I'd love it. What are you guys doing here? Are you fucking around? What are you doing? <laughs> well, don't ch- China just have zero trading fees. That's the only reason why it's so popular. You only have a yeah. withdrawal fee. Where? In China's exchanges. All that, and they can okay. they can margin the shit. They can they say yeah. if you had they had a hundred x leveraging for margining for margin trading, which means like if you put in one bitcoin, you can trade as if you had a hundred. I mean, that's more complicated than that, but essentially. <laughs> That's what's going on. It's a little more complicated than that, but it's like you got to pretend like you had a lot more money than you actually used. Granted, you can you can lose your money really quickly. Yeah, but people were trading as if they like the the market swings were were just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We need some uh, approved ETF kind of shit going on. Is what we need, but. The uh, what CTFC? Is that how you say it? They've taken forever with the old Winklevi, man. The Winklevi can't get any love. All they want to do is make people money and themselves majority, but make money for people. I don't know enough about that. I don't know enough about that to really like. It's, they've been doing it for a long time. They've been trying to do it for a long time, and well, when it, yeah, when it first started up. You know, people knew it was going to take a long time. Um, 
because that's it just takes the government forever to do things. It took a long time for them to approve gold ETFs back in the day. Not when I was young, when I wasn't born, but back in the day. So, I mean, it takes time, I guess. So Let's switch it up, though. I want to talk about something that's getting people pretty amped. Corey, the Lightning Network. Cello, the Lightning Network. Are you guys as amped about this as I am? No. I mean, I am, but I don't. I'm waiting for SegWit to come through, and I don't personally see the network coming to 95% consensus to, to pass it. I would hope that they happen, do. Right? I really when hope that they do. When SegWit gets activated, when will the Lightning Network be out? Immediately. Like, yeah. The, the, the Lightning Network stuff. I mean, he recently, what, what is it? Roast Beef recently put out the Alpha. I mean, like, that, that's, it's, they can run it. It's performing as expected. I mean, it, I feel like incredibly soon after Segwit gets passed, if it gets passed, we'll have we'll start seeing people implementing Lightning Network. I mean, Bitcoin has it implemented or a version of it implemented. JJ said it needs some work, but it's pretty much there. I mean, Bitcoin and I mean, uh, JJ and, and Roast Beef talk a lot. They spend a lot of time discussing these things and. and Ecoin will have it implemented. I don't know how fast um, Bitcoin Core will have it implemented, but I'd imagine pretty quickly they have people working on it. I never hear about Bitcoin unless it's coming from our Slack. I keep hearing that Litecoin is either going to make or break SegWit Lightning Network. Well, Litecoin has it. Litecoin has SegWit running on the testnet as of right now. Yeah, because if if the Litecoin network causes like a depreciating Litecoin price. I mean, don't expect SegWit coming to Bitcoin anytime soon. And that's that's what I've been hearing. I don't hear anything about Bitcoin ever. Well, Bitcoin and Litecoin are two completely different, two different things. things. Yeah, right. Bitcoin's an implementation of Bitcoin. Of Bitcoin. Of Bitcoin. It's not it's not like a separate coin. Litecoin is essentially a, a essentially a like a baby Bitcoin. And so you can they're they're they tend to do mm-hmm. more of the experimentation because they kinda have to if they want to try and see how things work. We can we can sit there and watch how things work on Lightning Network, and see like, I'm sorry, on on Litecoin, and see what happens. And if something fails, we're like, mm, you shouldn't do that on Bitcoin. But so that's a nice way of seeing like, in the wild, how things are going to react. But it's just Litecoin doesn't have the network effect it used to, and it's really hard. It's it's not second in command because it's not much different than Bitcoin, other than trying these new things out and seeing how they work if they work and bitcoin never does it i'd imagine you're going to see it grow quite a bit because people want that functionality and if they can't get it bitcoin they're going to go somewhere else yeah i think you know what i think about this 95 percent consensus i think that it's almost it's so impossible to get because i think a lot of people turn their shit on and just leave it yeah like, it's like they don't just looking at like even people running old clients like they don't up, they don't update regardless of how easy it is to upgrade update yeah and so like i go into businesses and places sometimes and they're still running like windows xp i ran into one they run windows xp yeah like and it's, what how are you doing this this is way stupid most people like, will uh use a software until um what do you call it development has stopped like customer service like when i think when, they'll use it until after that of xp and they'll just keep using it 
they'll just keep using it until it breaks and doesn't work. If, if it doesn't do what they want it to do, then, then they'll, they'll change. And, and as long as it keeps doing the same thing that they're used to it doing, they're just going to keep using it the same way. And I think go ahead. something has to break. And if it doesn't break, then they won't fix it. Or like actively look to look for something better or easier. See, that's why I think our generation tends to capitalize on some of the shit because we were behaviorally groomed to like yearn for an update almost. Yeah, we see those notification buttons and we got to be like, oh, I got to get rid of that notification button regardless of what it is. If it's like someone (laughs) sent me a message or I need, there's a new update for my app or or I have an email, I don't care what it is. It needs to go away. Yeah. Update my shit. Move some buttons around. I don't care what you fucking do. I think it was exciting trying to learn it again. (laughs) Update my shit. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 fix it for me and you know maybe that's just what happened like everybody who's running these nodes and, and mining they're just kind of too lazy to switch over to segwit like or vote for it or vote anybody for who it. runs that's a relay thing. node or a mining a mining full node or anything <laughs> like that they're just like eh, whatever it does its job yeah ah. What's up, Kazen? It's been a while since we've heard from the kids. <laughs> and the mute button. Um, I don't know, man. I'm really excited about the Lightning Network because it allows for the nearly endless upward bound of the number of transactions you can fit through. It allows for lots of things. Internet of things. Machine-to-machine commerce. Uh... Visa and MasterCard would then have some competition because other people could do what they could do for fucking virtually free. Well, me and uh, I, this is, uh, I guess, a, something that I, I found kind of interesting lately. Me and Chris DeRose from um, Bitcoin Uncensored had a back and forth on Facebook oh, past yeah? cu- the past couple of days. Oh, um, I didn't know this. Yeah, someone from uh, was Ryan X. Charles made a comment about. Um, updating to a dynamic block size and they had a kind of back and forth and Krista Rose asked the question, how much should a transaction cost? And so I kind of did a quick analysis of like what a transaction should cost. And then I, I mean, I also, so we, regardless of what that conversation was, um, we got on the topic of what would happen if we did have a dynamic block size. And he says that basically people are going to like to, to sum up, Krista Rose talking. He says that if there is space in the blockchain, people will use it and they'll spam it. It will always be full. And the reason why having a limited block size is is important is that it needs to cost money to put something into the block. Otherwise, people will just spam it and you can't get your transaction in. And so layer two solutions kind of have to exist because you need you need to pay so that people can't just Sybil attack or like dust transactions spam the block size mm-hmm. and make it artificially. There needs to be a market and a cost it's for the security be. that you're paying for. You're like the blockchain is secure. It has it has the best network securing the transactions. It has the best immutability of all the other blockchains. And that can't be free. Otherwise, we'll have people just spam the shit out of it, and you lose that functionality. You have to pay for that. 
Now, SegWit allows you to build layer two solutions on top of that and use that security when you need it. You can do all you can do. You can have like a layer on top of that security doing like running an economy and doing things on a small scale when you need to do things on a small scale. And when you need to tap into that security, you tap into it. And having a dynamic block size essentially just rapes the network, as he puts it, rapes the network. And people, like, if there is space, it will be filled. And enterprise doesn't use it because there isn't space. And the moment you give them space, they're going to jump in and use it and just fill it right back up. And we'll have the same problem. So there has to be some other solution outside of just expanding the space indefinitely because that ends up having problems on the network and who can run relay nodes, who can run mining nodes, things like that, if you just artificially scale up the size of a block. So running the network becomes more costly, which centralizes it further. And this is, this is, this is one of the many arguments of why you can't scale the blockchain, uh, like why you can't do on-chain scaling. You have to have layer two solutions. Doesn't, doesn't it require 95% support to activate? Yeah. That's, so, my, that's my problem is I don't, I don't, foresee that happening yeah it looks like i don't know what was dimitri's percentage like 15 percent they're they're uh they're running an implementation that won't ever signal support for segwit so i guess if i'm thinking about it the alternative is mining fewer blocks than segwit so if the segwit solution cannot reach i guess mining consensus it's even less likely that bitcoin unlimited proposal will reach consensus so we just need to get together we got to hash out a real compromise or this thing isn't going to work. There's there's also only about 25% of miners who are mining segwit blocks. So you have this this large percentage of miners that haven't moved either way yet. Bitcoin definitely needs a governance structure and it needs it almost ASAP or it's going to go the way of the dinosaur because it can't adapt and it can't grow. But D, like why are some miners not happy with it? Isn't scaling good for everyone? Lightning Network isn't necessarily great for everyone because it would take a, it would take those fees away from the miners. Am I right about that, Corey? No, I don't think so. Wouldn't it you, take you're gonna fees? you're gonna you're gonna see a massive uptick in, in usability, and it open it opens a lot of people using things for different business models. Which I mean, all the Lightning Network is using Bitcoin. Every channel that gets opened isn't has an open and closed transaction on the blockchain. So yeah, but how does that work as far as all the transactions that get? go on that channel the fees that, that go on that channel well at the end of the day you got to settle and that all, settle is a transaction these go to the it's just blockchain. it adds them it adds them all up and then the Damn. sum the net of all those things get puts into the bitcoin blockchain so you turn yeah, you know so a thousand transactions into one transaction so like it, in terms of the bitcoin blockchain nothing nothing really changes it just becomes a settlement layer you, you tap into that security and you then allow for all these different business models that you just simply can't do right now because you can't fit that many transactions for that price. Like you have to pay for that transaction. Mm. So you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know what the problem is. I think it's apathy in terms of allowing also people think that it's too many changes, which is just a dumb argument. It's really good technology. They're so just scared. Basically this is, what's happening is we have these groups of men that are really intelligent and really capable and really skillful 
helping build Bitcoin to grow, but no one's listening to them. That's what it feels like. Or no one cares. Yeah. Or they've 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 come up with this Armageddon scenario in their head and they're preaching that that isn't isn't realistic. And they feel like if nothing changes, then we can just keep growing. And that's certainly not the case. Like technology has to change to adapt to a new user base or new business models that want to use it. And if you can't adapt to what people like need in some way, shape, or form in a secure way, then you're just going to die. You're going to get left behind because people are adapting. Like, yeah. And, and other networks, other networks are trying to adapt because they have to. In order for them to compete, they need to offer the technology not offered by Bitcoin. And they're going to continue to innovate and adapt in that way. And when they start offering the services that Bitcoin can't do, people are just going to leave. Yeah. This is why most of the development is leaving Bitcoin and hopping over to Ethereum because people could just go build stuff if they want to well, build the, stuff. The, tools, the tooling of Ethereum is significantly better. And what the Ethereum blockchain allows you to do is significantly different than Bitcoin. Tools. Well, no. I don't know. Maybe we should like call for with our little bitty community corner in the Bitcoin podcast. We should call for some sort of like meeting of the what was that meeting called when they uh, it's in that movie, The Martian in the, the meeting in the Lord of the Rings where they decide they've got actually got to take the fucking ring to drop it in the lava. Where like the I elf comes. I don't know what that was called. I don't I'm not that into Lord of the Rings lore. Shit. Is it the Fellowship? The, it was the Fellowship. That's that that episode, I guess you could say. All that. I know is that Gandalf uses the hot sword spell a few times, and it's like the greatest spell in the world. It just turns somebody's sword hot, and they can't carry it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly the hot sword spell. He's the shittiest wizard of all, by the way. <laughs> I'd like to say that his most powerful thing that he did was shine a flashlight in a dragon's eye. Like, that's 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 his power. Yeah, but he did it like a pimp, man. Oh, okay. Let me hop on a horse with a giant flashlight, and then I'll be considered a pimp. Well, he's been using that, that spell for, like, thousands of years, so he's, like, really good at the flashlight spell now. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, when he first got it, 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 he didn't look that cool. But, you know, after, like, centuries of using it, you get really, like, glamorous with it. <laughs> Who's the wizard who looks through the book of spells and is like, ooh, flashlight. That's my shit. Like, that's the one I'm going with. I'm going to use that in so many different ways. Like, <laughs> the flashlight spell. Meanwhile, you got other wizards down the block that are like, I'm making fire come out of thin air. This is going to be my thing. Hey, not every X-Men can be Wolverine. Sometimes you need some Jubilees. <laughs> <laughs> well... What's your superpower? Fireworks. If I was Professor Sparklers. X, I would turn so many mutants away. Like, no, I don't. Want that. <laughs> You're not gonna come in this house with those powers. Goodbye. What's your superpower? Super fast digestion. Watch this. I'll eat and shit in like 30 seconds. Like, whoa, that's just weird. That's an inconvenience. Yeah, you can't. You definitely can't be a part of the team. Like, we can't you can't fly with us like what if we have to fly across the world i just want his his name is the shit <laughs> boo <laughs> boo
All right, dad jokes aside, <laughs> let's get into this interview. All right. But Do first, your thing, man. But first, uh, escrowmybits.com, who is a loyal sponsor to the show. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Just takes three steps. All you got to do is register and deposit your Bitcoin. Seller ships the item. Buyer checks the goods and releases the funds. And they also offer Bitcoin escrow with a locked exchange rate. So no matter where you are in the world, you can use the service and they got you covered. And they're going to charge a small flat escrow fee of 1% on all escrow transactions. And they even offer you the ability to split the fee with the other party. So their goal is to make using escrow as simple as possible. I think they've achieved it. We want there to no longer be any excuses on why not to use escrow. So to start that escrow process, go to that website and make sure you sign up for that newsletter. Stay up to date where you can escrow your shit with escrowmybits.com. I should mention it is escrowmybits.com, not escrow your shit with escrowmybits. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot uh, of people out there going to the wrong URL. Cello, who'd we talk to? Who'd we talk to? Uh, we talked to Bruce Pond, who was just like Dimitri Bucharin, uh, because he's helped a dozen bank and industry startups in Europe, Asia, and America. Uh, he's an, an advisor and investor to six startups. But mainly what we're focusing on is Big Chain DB. Uh, so let me tell you just a little bit about that so you can gain some context. Uh, they start with the, the, the benefits of modern databases, and then Big Chain DB, they add blockchain characteristics of decentralization and native assets. Uh, so basically it's for developers that want to implement trading systems, uh, clearing and settlement systems, uh, I don't know, energy grids, internet of things, supply chain use chases, uh, but without sacrificing scale security and performance. Uh, so they were built as a result of seeing scalability as a fundamental barrier to wider adoption of blockchain technologies. So this is the future. And, uh, you know, he was nice enough to come on the show and talk to us a little bit. Hell, yes, he was. Y'all ready to do this? Yeah. Yeah. Here it is. Asian guy named Bruce. All right. I'm here with Bruce Pond from Big Chain DP. He has uh, started a company that implements a type of blockchain technology applied to databases. Uh, Bruce, do you want to give us an introduction on who you are, how you got started in the space, and why you decided to create Big JDB? Sure. Pleasure. Thanks a lot for the opportunity to, to talk to your audience and to talk to you about um, some other aspects of blockchain. Um, we started out with a company called Ascribe, and we wanted to use the Bitcoin blockchain to, I guess, store claims of copyright, claims of intellectual property, where we saw that, you know, in the global world, each country's uh, copyright registry is limiting because it's only in that country. And just like Bitcoin um, is a borderless payment system, we saw that a borderless system based on decentralized technologies could be the basis for a whole bunch of different types of things like registry services or, you know, now that Ethereum has come out for decentralized processing or blocks that decentralized identity. And we tried to do that with um, claims of copyright. And we found that um, using Bitcoin as a substrate, um, a couple of things from a developer's perspective, it was very finicky to work with. It wasn't built because of the underlying native Bitcoin. It wasn't built um, with the op return particularly uh, 
to be able to handle the richness of data that we wanted to capture. So one idea that or what we had done was we had hashed the file, hashed the credentials or the identity, put that together and then put that into the op return. But and then you know have a, another database outside of the Bitcoin blockchain to handle the metadata, to have the actual file, and then to have kind of like licensing and rights information. And as we proceeded down our path, we we continually struggled with how to get the richness of data onto the Bitcoin blockchain. And we saw very early on there's some scalability challenges from our perspective. Um, if we we're going to collect all the intellectual property in the world, we would need transaction capacities in the range of 10,000 to a million transactions a second. And we also saw that the Bitcoin blockchain was fundamentally kind of a, a payments transmission network. And we didn't want to clog it. Yeah, <laughs> we that would definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> we were very cognizant that, you know, Bitcoin is kind of meant to be, you know, transferring cryptocurrency, something of value um, over the network. And for us to be, in, in essence, a parasite on top of the network, we thought was a good starting point, but it wasn't, it wasn't sustainable. We didn't want to take up all the bandwidth from the Bitcoin. Plus, we wanted to be able to define the richness of copyright claims. And that forced us to ask a couple of fundamental questions like what is Bitcoin? What is the core principles underneath Bitcoin and the blockchain? You know, and what are the characteristics that you, we, we would need in a system that could offer some sort of global decentralized registry or database system for the world? And as we move forward on this intellectual exercise, uh, this was already in July 2015, we realized that Bitcoin was fundamentally, uh, or the blockchain was fun fundamentally a, a, a simple database encased in, you know, um, consens a consensus algorithm. And we said, well, you know, of all the components, what could we do about it? Could we get rid of proof of work? Could we have richer asset definitions? Could we make it scalable? And, you know, what are the constructs that allow for that? And so that's kind of how we encountered BigchainDB. We realized that to get the scale, decentralization, and all the characteristics that a database offered, you had to fundamentally question some of the aspects of what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin um, so that we could use that the inspiration of Bitcoin in a decentralized world. Okay. So like a lot of people when I first asked about this company said that this wasn't something looking into because it's not that almost like if you follow lot of the scene what people talk about as bitcoin and blockchain and what is going to push the future it's this completely open completely accessible kind of ideology that they push from anything that strays from that is just terrible and that's i i, I feel that's not the case but why is why is your implementation this consensus layer on top of a traditional database, something you see that can be pushed and is trustable. We see that most, actually all traditional databases, what we call it now traditional databases, are centrally controlled. And the inspiration from Bitcoin was that 
you cannot have central control. The strength is actually in having a network and the network itself is the value. Um, and in that way, you can enforce trust and the truth. And if you think about it from that perspective, if you have something that has nothing to do with cryptocurrency, but is of something of value in a database, why not have decentralized trust? Why not have a decentralized global land registry or a copyright claims registry, or even something like when you install software updates, could you not put a hash of the, the software update into a global database where people can check against so they know where to go to, you know, very simple things that on a global scale in a decentralized network would make life a lot easier for people once they come around to all these different types of use cases. So for security or uh, global copyright claims, identity, um, even healthcare data where people could own their own data, not uh, bound to any central party's database, right? Right now, Facebook owns your data and Airbnb owns your reputation and Uber owns your ride history. What happens if you could store all that information into a global database where you have the keys to it and you control it? I strongly believe in, I think, you know, Blockstack uh, was just funded. Um, this is Ryan Shea and Muneeb uh, Ali, uh, yeah, who um, were just funded by USV and they, you know, in their, in their uh, funding announcement, they said, you know, we believe that you know, in 10 years, there's going to be a decentralized Facebook or a decentralized Uber. And the thing that could power that is something like BigchainDB, a globally decentralized database where nobody controls it, but everybody has access uh, to read into it. Um, and the rights have to be in some sense um, controlled because that is also um, how you get the database to scale. That was something like, I guess people don't, a lot of people, the general public or like kind of the non-developer aspect of Bitcoin don't understand that blockchain is a data structure, right? And how you define what the data structure is, is even different across the different blockchains. And then you have a consensus layer. So how an entire network comes to the decision of this is the state of the blockchain that we all agree upon. And in my opinion, the consensus model is the real revolution of how you have an agreement of a lot of people on a central source of data. And since Big Chain DB isn't necessarily using what I would consider a traditional blockchain, or it's a it's a blockchain layer on top of a traditional database, how does the consensus model work for people coming to an agreement on who gets to read, write, and what does like the actual state of data is on the database? So within Big Chain DB, we were we worked on this topic for quite a long time to get to this point, and we've kind of seen that there needs to be a public implementation of Big Chain DB where there are no toll gates and there are only on ramps. In other words, whatever data gets written onto that database is on that database, and what makes it valuable or true is the reputation of the person 
or the entity putting that, that information on. So just like um, Airbnb, your reputation is your bond. We see that a global database where you put claims of attribution or whatever uh, scientific reports or what have you um, could be backed up by the reputation um, of the identity putting that on there. And that's how we see how a global open database could operate. Within something like a private network, um, there are use cases that we see are possible within a private network. So for instance, I used to work in the automotive industry and one of the things that they struggle with is getting supplier information both upstream and then what happens to the cars downstream. And what happens if you could have kind of a, a, a layer above everybody's ERP systems where they share specific information simple information like the VIN number, right? Vehicle identification number, um, who has custody of it, all this kind of stuff. And you put that into a blockchain layer. And in that case, it's a, because it's a closed network, you have uh, the entities very clearly identified and known. It's shared amongst the parties. And that allows for a streamlining of trade finance, insurance, as well as risk management, as well as like seeing where things get held up in bottlenecks, whether at customs control or where have you. And so these are kind of the two modalities that we see big changes be being implemented in. So kind of a global database where anybody can put that information on and it's actually the identity of the application or the individual that determines how much it's trusted or within a private network where those the data that's put on there is already amongst trusted parties and they have legal mechanisms outside of a blockchain uh, if somebody uh, becomes a bad actor. You see, so with Ethereum, right, you, it's, it's costly to store a lot of information to create databases on the Ethereum network, on the Ethereum, on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, sure. You see yourself as kind of the, a piece of the fundamental architecture stack for decentralized applications to build upon. It's like you have maybe Ethereum for the business logic. It then stores whatever metadata data database that it needs to store on a big chain DB and maybe it's stored on IPFS, something like that. Is that kind of where you see your one fundamental link in the chain of creating the complete stack? Yeah, very early on we saw that the blockchain or the decentralized ecosystem would have to mirror the current computing stack. That means that you have, you know, storage layers, you have communication, uh, business logic, and then on top of that platforms. And for us, it was clearly something like Ethereum or List that was business processing, business logic. IPFS was kind of a, a data store. So for big, uh, large media files, podcasts, uh, music, movies, all this kind of stuff. And big chain DB, um, when we came onto the scene, we had realized that there was no other kind of transactional database technology that was decentralized. And so that's how we saw it. And then uh, entities like R3 or Eris, um, sorry, I think they're called Monax now. Um, Who's fast? Uh, and everybody, yeah, and everybody around that uh, would be building platforms on top of this kind of core stack. And I just want to give kind of an example, a real example to um, the, on how this works. So if you run Ethereum, and let's say you have kind of a sport betting smart contract on Ethereum, 
and there's a, a match between, let's say, the Dallas Cowboys and New England Patriots for something. When that game is over, the score is entered in, and then somehow the Ethereum contract would kick off paying the winner of the bet, right? So the question is, where does that information come from to kick off or trigger the Ethereum contract? Um, Oracle is it has like been... A life? The, the concept Oracle, of an right? Oracle has been, I guess, really sought after in the Ethereum community because that question exactly is one of the hard parts. How can you trust the data that comes into the contract? Right. And so let's say there's this um, website that becomes the Oracle called it sportscore.com. And as soon as the match is done, um, it enters in the score and the Ethereum smart contractor, the experience script pulls from sportscore.com. And then that is kind of the truth, right? The problem is, is sportscore.com is a centralized system. You can hack their server. If enough money is on, uh, on for betting, the somebody's going to be incentivized to change that the the result even if it's just for 10 minutes so long as the ethereum contract can kick off because it's irreversible right so all you have to do is hack the system for five minutes people what have you will say oh that's wrong what have you and then five minutes later they turn it back but it's already been done the ethereum contract is spent right and so the way we saw it was that big chain tv is something that goes in the middle and what happens is what you would do is you take sportscore.com and betscore.com and nflscore.com and all those all that information would come into BigchainDB into kind of a, a a network where there's validation across it. And as soon as you have you know from let's say 20 sources of 51 percent, that would be a validation. And so BigchainDB could actually serve as an oracle into the Ethereum contract because for somebody to hack 10 websites at the same time simultaneously is extremely hard. And this is one of the fundamental things about decentralization. Um, and that's one of the powers of it. Um, and in that way, you could allow for oracleization into Ethereum contracts without having to store all this data, and especially something like IoT, um, energy systems and stuff, you have to have, or autonomous cars, you have to have this constant stream of data coming in. And what happens if you could use BigChain DB for that? And only when you reach a threshold condition does that trigger a value exchange in something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or what have you. And that's kind of the sweet spot of where we see BigchainDB fitting in because it is a database that is decentralized, it scales, it can handle that flow of data, but it's not a centralized database. It is the bridge between ledgers of value and um, the kind of the real world, the physical world or the digital world that is centralized. You have two many forms of centralization in the whole community. Um, one is centralization of read-write access, the administration of the database. The other would be the storage of the database. How, how do you deal with the storage? Uh, like where are these things stored and how can you guarantee that um, that can't be tampered with? Yeah, so in the open big chain global network, which we're calling interplanetary database. It's a separate entity, separate foundation that is not controlled by us. Um, we have, I think at this stage, 17 members and we're planning to have up to 100 members. 
into it, they all have kind of one vote, one, uh, one kind of stake, one vote. And that's uh, how we allow people to access kind of a global database. Now, anybody who wants to um, use BigchainDB in itself as a decentralized database or as an oracle for a smart contract in the Ethereum world or any other cryptocurrency um, kind of ledger of value, uh, because we're using a database, it's somewhere in the orders of uh, six or seven orders of magnitude cheaper than Ethereum or Bitcoin. In in which case, it makes it's a lot more economical to capture data and to store data because you have a consensus layer that is much more cost effective, um, but you can still trust the database, and that's kind of how we see where you could store whole bunches of data in there. Now, who pays for that? Well, you do, right? So the, the people who run the app, um, when we did our economic analysis, we found that you know storing data on BigchainDB is somewhere in the range of 10 to 30 times more expensive than a traditional database. In other words, if you want pure data storage, go with Amazon, right? Because it is the cheapest way that you can get it. But if you need, if there is some business case where 20 times more expensive storage um, for decentralized truth and trust makes sense, big chain DB is your choice. And so we're very conscious to say, you know, like, hey, if, if a, a centralized database works for you, then don't spend 20x the, the amount. That being said, a cost of one transaction in a typical database is, you know, one ten millionth of a cent, right? So if you, if you make that 20x that um, in a traditional database and compare it to big chain DB, of course, we're expensive. But compared to something like a Bitcoin or Ethereum network, we're a lot cheaper. Yeah. And that way, we can be the oracle um, to capture huge amounts of data for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. And what that I see being said, if you're if you're going to be doing a lot of data, it it does cost money. Yeah. Yeah. What I see, I see this as a really a push for a change in the way people have options and how they build things. In the past, it you wanted to build something, you had one choice. You make a database, it's centralized. You have a client-server model for an application. And as we move more forward into these technologies, you're really giving the developer a choice to choose between trust, scale, transaction. He has a lot more choices and options on how he chooses to build something. It isn't relegated to traditional architecture. So if you, have, if you need a lot of trust then you can make your application with different different parts of the stack. You're going to pay for it, but trust shouldn't be cheap. You know what I mean? So this is a real big piece of the pie that was previously missing in terms of scalability with trust. That allows people to build applications that they want or have options to build the applications they want. Is that something that you, that you knew ahead of time or saw ahead of time? Or did it just kind of... Hey, we did this. It was based on our own need. So, you know, we believed in Bitcoin. We still do, naturally. And as we, but when we used it for this specific purpose, because we saw that Bitcoin, the blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain was this amazing global state machine. And using that state machine, there is incontrovertible truth about the time when a claim comes onto the network. And just solving in our own problem, we realized that, um, well, a lot of this came after the fact to answer your question, right? We were just building this for us. We were looking at a scribe 
and saying, you know, the database doesn't scale, um, the Bitcoin blockchain. Um, but we want decentralized trust and there's no way to get this in either the traditional world or in the Bitcoin world because we don't want to clog the network. That's actually um, the answer I would sorry, hope you say. It's, it's, I like that you were trying to solve a specific problem and came upon the solution and then you share the solution as opposed to trying to make a solution and look for a problem. And that's, that's really important because you, you've built something that solves a very specific problem that's very useful in a lot of different places. And you're not just searching to find an application for a solution that you created, which is a very different and harder to fit business model. Yeah, we're still in the early days though. So I think everybody is looking at how do you, how do you become sustainable? Because the hype cycle has caught up to us a lot faster than we ever expected for the whole decentralized ecosystem, right? For Bitcoin, everything's fine because the price keeps rising. And so you have this really healthy ecosystem of miners, core devs, speculators, and you know everybody in between. For the decentralized community where we're looking at the inspiration of Bitcoin and the blockchain to build other types of applications that give developers more choice um, and allow for kind of a shift in paradigm of how we're going to be able to build apps in the future. Um, it's going to take a while for people to really catch on because it's a fundamental paradigm shift. I mean, intellectual property is something that people can stick their hands into. Or the example I use with sport betting. I mean, everybody makes sense. Yeah, duh, you kind of need something that filters that information from multiple sources before you can take it as truth. Makes sense. But it's taken a long time for us to get to this point because after we built BigchainDB, uh, we knew that it was something that was general purpose. That as a, a database, it was kind of like you had a hierarchical databases, then you went to NoSQL databases, which essentially gave you the scale and uh, that you didn't have in the in the hierarchical database. And then BigchainDB is kind of the next phase of database technology in our mind in that it gives you the scale and the decentralized control, decentralized trust. And so when you have a brand new technology, unless you have kind of an anchor use case, it's going to be really hard to develop a business case off of that. And so we really want the community to, or we want to support the community. We already have like kind of, um, uh, we set up meetups now and stuff like that so that we can start getting these ideas forward for people to start thinking about how would I build my next app in a decentralized database world. All right. So that's, that's nice. So how, how do you feel 2017 is going to be for the cryptocurrency world or the blockchain world? Like, where do you see, can you, can you give us an outlook on one, where y'all will be and how the, what that is relative to the entire environment? I think 2017 is going to be much like 2017 to be, or 16, to be honest. I think that the space is expanding so quickly that it's still not time for a shakedown, right? It's not time for consolidation yet. So just like you had six search engines before Google showed up and you had 20 car companies in America before, you know, you came down to like five or six of them. I, th I still think we're in the phase where people are still trying to get their heads around what this means. And because people say something Bitcoin, they confuse it with the network, the software and the cryptocurrency itself. Absolutely. Now we're talking blockchain. Um, there's just too many, um, 
it's good branding though, right? When you say Bitcoin, everybody's That's, like, yeah, Bitcoin. You we're know? the Bitcoin podcast, but we talk about <laughs> everything. Um, it's great branding, right? Just like Ethereum. When you think about Ethereum, you don't you don't realize that there are multiple components on there, right? Browser, there's the uh, uh, virtual machine, there's, you know, all these things. Um, it's good branding, but what it does is it obfuscates for the general public. Maybe not for the devs, because they can figure that out and, you know, it's kind of their world. But it makes it really hard for the public to understand and enterprises kind of in the middle who are trying to get a handle on this, uh, what to do. So 2017, I think that Hyperledger is going to move forward um, very strongly because I think they have a really strong architecture and they have a strong community global now um, under the, the leadership of Brian Behlendorf, who has a lot of credibility in the open source world. Um, I think the Ethereum group, uh, the whole community, I think they're, they're, they are going to have a breakthrough this year. Um, you know, I, everybody remembers kind of Dow, but you know, if, if you think about it, which systems are truly kind of in production. And I think this year you can have stuff like Ujo music or the, um, uh, was it the prediction markets? Augur, Ignosis. Augur and a couple other ones that might, might break through. And I think that'll be good because then that'll give another uh, kind of look and another perspective. I think Zcash is going to continue uh, growing, maybe even becoming somehow a competitor to Bitcoin. And for us, we want to work closely with uh, IPFS and also the Ethereum community as well as the Bitcoin community to just say, okay, look, if you need something at scales that handles a crap load of data, but it's not, you don't want to handle that all on your core chain, use us. I mean, we're a lot cheaper. And so we're going to be making a big push with uh, the interplanetary database and supporting that one um, because we see that if developers start building these apps with a new paradigm and uh, it makes sense and there's a business case behind it, then that's kind of a use case that we can all kind of celebrate together. Um, and it is complementary to the whole Bitcoin ecosystem because, you know, a decentralized database, if it serves as an Oracle or a central registry, that makes it so that Ethereum scripts can run. And that also means that those Ethereum scripts can call Bitcoin uh, the Bitcoin network to pay out when it, it has to, right? So this whole, everything kind of fits together. And IPFS is kind of like the data store for large media files and stuff. And I think that's a something good for the open community because something like Hyperledger is more enterprise focused. It's more focused on um, kind of the world that most devs aren't a part of. Let's just say, well, it's not that they're not a part of, but um, I've heard numerous times that most devs in the blockchain space don't want to work for large enterprises because if they have such a great idea for a wallet or an exchange or a blockchain app, then they're just going to build it themselves and then they'll sell it to the enterprise. Um, and so I think that um, you kind of have two streams going uh, in 2017. One is the enterprise stream, which has a lot of the money, a lot of the momentum uh, and the funding, but they actually are slower than individual developers who can code, release an app, iterate, and within a month have something up and running that um, beats the socks off like most enterprises. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all that. And I think interoperability is going to be the main thing that holds all this together and, and makes it strong. That's, that's the key I see 
that's making this successful is the ability to interoperate between whatever you want to do amongst all the different quote-unquote blockchains. Yeah, and I think Ripple has done like has been around for quite a long time, and they've done a lot of good early work. And then with the Interledger protocol, um, I think they set the standard for how you can have interoperability of ledgers and value. Um, with us, what we've been working on with is for interoperability amongst ledgers for intellectual property. So we've been working on this thing called Koala IP. It's a W3C um, project to make it so that no matter how you've captured the rights for somebody's claims of intellectual property, and no matter which blockchain you've stored it on, there is interoperability amongst that. Um, and so we've been working in that area. And I think that there'll be interoperability protocols and specifications and standards for other things like IoT, energy systems, um, autonomous vehicles, healthcare. These are all things that have to happen for blockchains to actually kind of start gaining that first five to 20% usage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's, that's a, I think we can wrap up on that one. We have one more question that we always ask all of our guests. Can, uh, can you explain blockchain in 10 words or less? It's decentralization technology that is a general purpose technology for the world. I feel like you worked on that. No, I didn't. <laughs> it just came. I knew this was coming, and I, I yeah. think I practiced something back in the day, but this just came up now. I've been on vacation for three weeks, so I haven't talked blockchain for three weeks. Nice. I'm glad you could come on. I appreciate you uh, kind of sharing with us what your vision for Big Chain DB is and, and what you're what you're. What you're bring into the to the table do you have anything you want to plug or tell our listeners how they can get started um go to bigchaindb.com uh, or go to our github site bigchaindb uh, we'd love to work with you if you're a dev out there and you got an idea for an app come to us you guys are our number one customer all right thanks bruce cool. i appreciate thanks it a lot. take care yeah. and that was the interview with bruce pond bigchaindb we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you're learned now. We hope you also feel, I've been seeing this word go around the internet lately, woke. We hope that you're woke. Um, I think it means like you are you can see the light now. I don't know what it means, but we hope that interview woke you. And okay. Is that what it means, Chella? I don't know. I don't know. Just say it was lit. That's what the kids are saying, too. Okay, yeah, that interview was lit as fuck. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Uh, and then we can play Pond the Replay by Rihanna so the kids can relate to our Bruce Pond interview. Nice. Wait, Pond the Replay, isn't that like from the late 90s, that song? It was before Rihanna became like uh, a horror. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Okay. Pretty straightforward, I was huh? Not expecting... <laughs> it was like when she was making real music. <laughs> I was expecting you to say famous. This is before Rihanna became a household name. But no. you really threw a curveball at everyone there. <laughs> Sorry. Before it became a talented young lady. <laughs> Sorry. That's gonna be hard for me to concentrate now. Oh that but anyways, moving on. What else have we got to talk about today? What else is on the docket? An interesting Bitcoin news. I would like to talk to you guys on how you are writing 
the Bitcoin roller coaster lately? We've gone from a thousand to low eight hundreds. How are you guys navigating this? I'm woke now, bro. Woke. No, I'm kidding. Um, Corey, I don't know about you, but it doesn't bother me too much. To me, I look at it as like the very, very risky part of my total wealth portfolio, and I expect it to do what it does. So I don't really care too much. Um, for me, the hardest part about riding the roller coaster is being such a being so publicly outspoken for Bitcoin and its value and its uh, potential and positioning to to do much. I have to always make sure I'm not the guy who's being like, yeah, look at Bitcoin's price go up and up and up. And I'm also publicly earnest about, yeah, Bitcoin's dropped quite a bit. So that's the biggest bull to bite for me. But I think as long as I'm earnest about it, then my public reputation isn't tarnished anyway. So, yeah, that's how I'm riding the roller coaster. The price doesn't too much affect me because I'm smart about what I do with my wealth as a whole. But the the public roller coaster is the much more important to me, I guess. Yeah, it's it's hard because this these bubbles. I guess you want to call it a bubble call, whatever you want. These uh, rapid price increases and rapid drops are kind of the natural way of things move. And what's the problem with public perception of that is the moment it gets to a high point is when people start hearing about it um, in their you know traditional media sources that aren't you know tailored towards Bitcoin, like the ones we tend to follow. And they hear about it, they hear they see the price, and they want to get in. And the moment they get in, the price drops. So. By the time you hear about it in like a traditional media source that doesn't always cover Bitcoin, like other financial media sources, like look at Bitcoin, it's ha- the price is rising. We should talk about it. Um, people then hear about it, they get into it, price drops, they think it's a scam or they think it's a piece of shit and then they get out when overall the price is higher than it was last year. Like the, 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 like the if you zoom out, in time to, time span, the price increase has been pretty great. It's still been a great investment for me over the course of me being mm-hmm. in Bitcoin, and it will continue to be a good investment for me throughout time in the Bitcoin, as long as I keep an eye on it, stay smart with it, and barring something crazy doesn't happen. But yep. I, I mean, I also have moved more of my my everyday financing into Bitcoin and using Coinbase and the shift card. So when it was up at 1150, I didn't worry about going to lunch and spending money. Now that it's down back at 830, I'm going to be eating salads at lunch. Make sure that Mm -hmm. I can pay for the rest of the month. The coolest thing about spending Bitcoin, Corey, I know you've experienced this, is that when you're on that price rise, it's like you're not spending money. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I don't know if that's a, a, a safe or like advisable way to look at it, but it's certainly like a oh. natural, like what, what I naturally do. Like, oh, price jumped a hundred dollars. Thanks free lunch. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a weird feeling and it's not, like you said, it's not the way you should go about it, but like your human greed factor or whatever you want to call it. It's so natural. It's like, oh cool that $15 dinner that I paid for yesterday I actually didn't pay for because the price went up 
and the value of my coins is just that much more. So I mean, mathematically speaking, right? Dinner. Mathematically huh? speaking, say like if you if you make we'll say you make a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars a month, so we're just we're making up numbers for ease, ease of percentages, and you pay for something, pay for a lunch that's five dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's five percent of your of your monthly budget. Now, mm-hmm. say for instance that one that one hundred dollars gets bumped up to two hundred dollars out of magic out of the magic market that is bitcoin now awesome that lunch is now 2.5 percent of your monthly budget Mm -hmm. so like it it literally is less of how much money you have when the price goes up but it works both ways Mm -hmm. so you need to you need to kind of hedge your bets in case the price goes down when you're thinking like that because the price could come back down and say that $100 is now $50. Now it's 10% of your total monthly budget. So you accidentally spent 10% of your total monthly budget because you thought you had more when the price was higher. And that volatility is why a lot of people are scared. Yeah, and so that's what's I'm really pumped about them kind of Putting a few reins on the margin trading in China, you're not going to have. I don't. Th- I don't personally think you're going to have nearly as much volatility in the market as we've seen over the past couple of years. Yeah, it's going to continue me, to get steady, and so the price you see will be real reflection of the people using Bitcoin and not traders throwing wild money at. at at the market that they don't have. And then mm-hmm. when something happens and the price swings and those margins get called, so what happens, say so you have you have you know a, a five margin. Mm-hmm. You have a five, five times leverage on a margin trade. You have one Bitcoin and some trade and you go long, you're you're betting that the price is going to rise over time and the price falls. If the price falls within a certain amount of time, a certain minute and Sorry, if the price falls to a certain level below what you put in, all your money's gone. And it happens once the like the moment it falls below that. And so mm-hmm. that then makes the price you then sell that Bitcoin. That then makes the price drop further and other people's longs get liquidated, then other people's longs get liquidated, and it becomes this kind of snowball effect of oh shit, everyone that bet the price was going up lost all the money they put in that bet. Mm-hmm. And then you just it's a, the price falls until you reach some real bottom floor of support where everyone's like, if, it, if the price gets to this price, I'm buying all of it. And so you have these yeah. kind of safety floors at the bottom of the market, which for us was seven hundred fifty dollars. That's yeah. why it stopped. Did it get seven fifty? I thought it kind of stopped at like seven seven. It hit seven fifty for like a hot second, and then everybody bought it up. Oh uh, yeah. My friend who trades forex said it was going to go down to six sixty six. Like that's a really random number. He said, "Yeah, but that's just what it says on my charts." Like, yeah, right. Didn't say that. You just you just wanted to be that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he's right. It did retrace quite a bit, thirty percent, something like that. Something crazy. Um, but uh, that's Bitcoin, man. But I know, Cello, you announced for like the first time in the like, you were like, 
I don't really invest in Bitcoin anymore. I'm just excited about the technology. Yep. I know you. Can you not handle the heat? So you got out of the kitchen? Hey, you. No, even though I was investing, the way I played it was I focused on my full-time job and I forgot about Bitcoin. And I was just set to ride the investment wave of Bitcoin with no stress. So I figured... Well, it takes a lot of discipline to operate that way. You know, I, I figured out how much money I could flush down the toilet and then I just did dollar cost averaging. And it, it doesn't matter if Bitcoin was $1,000 or $200. It was, and then I realized that there was no, even though it was safe, I wasn't getting any excitement out of it either. So I kind of just stopped and now I just kind of focus on the technology. So I, I have a little bit of Bitcoin and, you know, so I can go to the moon partially. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not currently doing it. Mm. But you know, who's that? Who's that uh, person you had on on ramping? Like, who's Josh? You know, he's bragging about how much Bitcoin he has. Did you let him know that, like, if you have more than a thousand dollars in your account, you should probably set up monthly transfers to like a Treasure hardware wallet or something. Like, you shouldn't. We hold, actually like, talked about. Okay. We talked about hardware wallets on that episode. Because I know he's not, got like has 12 care. Bitcoin in his Coinbase account, which I don't think you should do. No, you should. He, put, I mean, he said that. In hardware wallets are so cheap now, man. You can get what, like the Ledger Nano for like 30 bucks or something? Or the Vault. Vault works fine. Yeah, get use the a Vault. That's fine. But I, I would prefer, I would just prefer a hardware wallet. Yeah. It's, it's the most, it's probably the safest outside of a paper wallet. With, with actually having some convenience of usability. Yeah, I want that Trezor Blue. They're not that expensive, and they're getting better in terms of like their usability. Definitely. You can back those up, too. Back when technology up, reaches a point where you can keep a hardware wallet like on your keychain, and that's just a little fob you carry around to pay with stuff. Can someone do a parody video of uh, juveniles back that ass up, but it should be like back that hardware wallet up? You do that, cello. Yeah, I, you get right on that, man. <laughs> like you... <laughs> Can I dedicate the rest of my week to doing that? Sure. Yeah, do what you do. It's your week, uh, your uh, time. I'm not. I'm not in charge of your week. <laughs> yeah, I won't charge your week either, or participate. But you. Can... <laughs> I think I'm not gonna do that. Feel free to ask me questions. What? What? what, what re- <laughs> you can't replace ass with hardware wallet. That's way too many syllables. Well, like that pass up. I like that. Damn yeah. it, Corey. Why'd now you make it possible? Yeah, back that pass up. He's That's a, not bad. He's a, big, <laughs> he's a large amount of Bitcoin. Once you back that pass up. Well, who is all right, let's playable? all dedicate our week to this. Back mm. that pass up. <laughs> oh, boy. We'll see Anyways, if we can start his tweets on. That idea was brought to you by Athena Bitcoin. <laughs> Not even our episode, just that idea. It's the most uh, trusted name in Bitcoin ATMs. They're located in H Town, D Town, Cedar Hill, Fort Worth, uh, and seven or eight other U.S. cities. They're expanding. So download that Athena Bitcoin wallet on the App Store, or Google Play. It is the Bitcoin Podcast number one Bitcoin ATM. We love it. For specific locations and more information, visit athenabitcoin.com. And we're also brought to you by. Their portfolio company, Bitquick.co. Uh, it is secure, quick, and easy. 
It's peer-to-peer. It's a marketplace where you can get Bitcoin for cash in as little as three hours. And they've been serving Bitcoiners since 2013. So where there's a bank, there is Bitquick. All right, let's wrap it up. So you're working with some cash? Yeah. Some oh, cash, God. yeah. But you're some cash, yeah. Some cash, yeah. But you're worried about your past, yeah. Your past, yeah. <laughs> All right, so next week we're going to unveil, unveil that song. And we're also, uh, Arthur Falls is joining us from the Ether Review. Awesome. All the way from New Zealand, I believe. He said, fuck New York. Fuck the States. He got out quick. Also, he may he not be as bullish on Bitcoin as we are. So that'll be some interesting conversation for those who who are Bitcoin maximalists or are on the fence. He has some opinions that you're not going to hear from a Bitcoin maximalist for sure. There's some hacking motherfuckers. Yeah. Stealing money. Yeah. (laughs) Uh. Join us on Slack. Talk to us on Twitter. Find us on any podcast app, the Bitcoin podcast. You guess what? If you Google search Bitcoin space podcast, number one, come at you. Coming at you. Come see us on our website. You can see our statistics under resources and info. See how many people are downloading us, when they're downloading us, and where they're downloading us from. Then become one of those people. So, holla. Are we done? We're done. Are we going to be done with this episode? We're done. All right. Well, play.